Good morning, Laura. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Doing very well. Anxious to find out if this is a moment in your life now where you can finally just breathe because you've now put it on the page. We're now receiving it on this side of the bookstores. Now it's time for you to just breathe. It is that time. I feel like I'm taking an exhale after a really long time. At any time during the journey, did you think, I'm, I'm a student, I have to learn from this. There's a reason why all of this is taking place in my life. I've, I've just got to figure out how to create the path because I don't want others to walk the same way. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely um, a moment, you know, during during the last 10 years, I was working, you know, in uh, as a literary, in for a literary agency and working with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and Brian Stevenson. So... I was learning from each of the authors that I was working with while keeping a secret and desperately afraid they'd find out about me, about my past. So, you know, did I think I would do this book? That took a while. Yeah. It took a while. Well, to be with with the Dalai Lama as well as Desmond Tutu, I mean, in, in a very spiritual way, they probably already knew. They just knew that they had to take this student who has had all these experiences and let's let's shape her in a way that is going to grow in the future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm working with some of the most non judgy people in the world, but I was still afraid of of being judged and I was still afraid of people finding out the secret in my past and you know it's really hard to move past the worst thing you've ever done right and so I was always afraid people would would find out and then I ratted myself out and that felt really good (laughs) <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you know, when, when you judge yourself, I mean, what does that image look like in the mirror? Because, I mean, only that image in the mirror knows who you are and what you've been through. Everybody else is just part of the story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was really unforgiving of myself. Mm. And I worked on the book of forgiving with Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, and and I was given a lot of forgiveness from my children, from my family. Um but it was really hard for me to forgive myself for for my weaknesses, right? For the fact that I imploded not only my life, but my children's life spectacularly, you know? Like I kind of overachieve in every area for good or bad. And and I hurt a lot of people in my community and and I was publicly humiliated and I was embarrassed and I was hiding. And yeah, it was really hard for me to to forgive myself for sure. Wow, the art of forgiveness. Right away, you just placed me back into my daily writing because I use that book as a tool. And and it's because that I find more in these books that you know you, you and you participated with it. I I'm just in shock and awe right now. Yeah. I mean, I was I was working on I was ghostwriting the book of forgiving um oh. for Archbishop Desmond Tutu and there was a and his daughter Empa Tutu. And, you know, when I got to the chapter on self-forgiveness, I was like, ah, I don't know what to do. And I actually went back, I went back to the jail that where I had been and um, did a little workshop with the women in there with the exercises in the book, you know, just to sort of field test them in Santa Cruz, California. And every single woman in jail had trouble with the self-forgiveness. That was the thing, you know, like no one grows up wanting to be a criminal wanting to go to jail you know it's no one's you know big dream for life um and the women in jail 80 percent of them are mothers Mm -hmm. 
And so you talk about guilt. I mean, mom guilt and mom shame is, you know, in the best of worlds, a thing. But when you are struggling with addiction, when you're separated from your children because you're incarcerated because, you know, some poor life choices, right? Like it's just, it's, it's, you know, the guilt is overwhelming for everyone. The book we're talking about is The Many Lives of Mama Love. When did you realize that you had earned that that moment of where you are going to become Mama Love? Well, Mama Love was actually my jail nickname. Um, when I was incarcerated, I was given that, you know, everybody in jail has a nickname and you get it in one of two ways. Either, you know, your your brand on the street is so strong it travels with you or you get it from your the women you're in jail with. And so... I was a mom with nowhere to put my mother energy in jail. And honestly, the women I was in jail with were not that much older than my oldest son, um, who was 17. And when I went to jail and, and, you know, one of my closest friends in jail was 19. So I was given that nickname because I tried to help and because I was there to listen to and because I had some life experience that was different from some of them and they had life experience that was different from from mine and you know they saved me in a lot of ways the i felt very isolated and alone and people were angry with me out in the world but those women really supported me in my darkest and loneliest time of my life. You dealt with a spiritual journey in, in your days there as well as after. My brother went to prison because of drug addiction. And and the thing is, he always constantly reminds me, I found Jesus there. I found Jesus there. And I go, what are you going to do with what you found? Do something with it. How did you make that step to start doing something with what you found there? Yeah, well, I found Eckhart Tolle in jail. And that, oh, my you know, God. Great. Oh, yes. I, Oh my the, God. the only book I had to read at first was The Power of Now. Yes. It was the only book in there. And I read it over and over again. And, you know, jail is a great place to learn to meditate. I mean, there's easier ways, but it really helped me. You know, I didn't know what was happening. I spent a long, I spent, you know, months where I, I don't know if I'm going to never see my children again until they're in their 40s. You know, am I going to go away to prison for a long time? And that helped me just really be present you know, in those endless court appearances. And, um, you know, meditating started to feel better than any drug I'd ever done, Mm -hmm. honestly. Um, So, you know, that was probably the first step. I had a long road, you know, like I wasn't prepared for reentry, right? And so, uh, you know, I thought like, I'm gonna pay for my crimes, I'm gonna pay my restitution, I'm gonna do all the things and then it's over. But it's never over for people who are incarcerated. You know, like every sentence is kind of a life sentence because you get out and you're just there's barrier after barrier to rebuild your life. You know what? You bring up a very interesting point in the way of, you know, because people reentering the world. Is that not a form of PTSD? And nobody on the streets are really talking about that. They'll talk about other forms of PTSD. But what about for those that have done their time? You know, it. I've never heard anyone else talk about it, but it is PTSD because I still have dreams. I had one just a few weeks ago where I'm having to go back to jail, mm. you know, like they're they're coming and I'm trying to convince people, no, I haven't done anything wrong. And when you're reentering any little thing, people can make something up and you go back to jail. There's this constant fear. And it was for me, but it's constant fear on probation when you're under correctional control post jail. That fear is always there. And then even when you're off, it's still there. 
facing those steps of, of becoming real with with the secrets that you keep I'm a daily writer in the way that I also keep a defrag journal where I ask the questions I question the answers and that means I have to sit there with myself how did you sit there with yourself and what did you do to deal with that self mm, you know writing was how growing up writing was how I kind of process my emotions and my feelings and you know a not so great childhood I stopped writing on drugs, really? right? So when I started writing again, first as other people, right? You know, it's weird to go from like identity theft to ghostwriter, right? Like it's it's an interesting trajectory, but um, you know, writing helps me process everything. So I'm not, you know, I may not have been able to be open with people about my past, and I lived in fear and kind of isolation and shame, but writing heals. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, only because these books have been so important in my life. And, and it, it, was a, it was a shocking moment when, when somebody told me, you know those books that you're reading with the Dalai Lama? That's not him. And, and I go, but it is him. I, I, I'm, I'm reading it. The way that it's being shared to me is, is through him. But, but it was a shocker to me to realize that there were ghost writers. Do you have to deal with that? No, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's collaborative writing. It's not... Um, you know, it's not not them, right? But the odds, you know, 80% of nonfiction books have some kind of writing support for the authors because the odds that you're going to be the, you know, spiritual leader or, um, you know, an expert in your field and also really be uh, gifted in narrative, you know, like that's the expertise for the collaborative writer. It's narrative structure and storytelling, but it's their ideas, their concepts, yeah. their feelings. Does it come out? Because one, one of the things I've learned about, about spiritual writing is it comes out in spurts. It might be a sentence. It might be a paragraph. You may not get something today. What was it like for you to be able to be in those moments of receiving? Mm. You know, I, uh, I tend to be a procrastinator with my writing. So, you know, when I was collaborative writing, um, you know, I do a lot of processing internally before I sit down to do it on the page. But, you know, I think writing anyone who has a writing deadline can write right <laughs> doing a book it'll take a year it'll take a month it just depends what you have and that's my experience you know i wrote i collaboratively wrote 12 books in like six years seven years maybe um and so it's weird you know like i've written this is my 13th book and the first book is me so it is a weird it's a very different process writing your own book versus writing for someone else and you know, I was always good at being other people. So it was a it was a struggle to do my own book at first. Now, that's interesting because I, I do a thing called hidden speak. And so, I mean, do you feel like it was hidden speak in the way that you were, you know, you, you like being other people. But I mean, you're using their words to bring out your creative flow. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a little um, there's a little hiding in that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you know, I like to hide in the back of books and I hide behind other people's names because it was less vulnerable for me right um but i put a little bit of my creativity you know the the i did a book called the sun does shine which was an oprah book club pick about a man who'd been on death row for 30 years for a crime he didn't commit in alabama anthony ray hinton and that was the first book that i was co-author so i was on the on the cover with him and and collaborative writers or ghost writers they're either in the acknowledgments the title page or the cover depending depending so that was the first time where I really felt like 
Um, I was exposing myself a little bit. And, you know, Anthony Ray Hinton and I were very different people, but we shared common feelings and we were able to pour both of our pain together on the page. And so that was my first step. I think towards doing my own book. The steps in doing this when you when you ghostwrite, are you are you recording it as well? Oh yeah, recording, spending a lot of time together because you know, there's things just hanging out with someone, you get you start to pick up the way they think and their little quirks of speech. And, you know, voice voice is something that's really hard to teach. You know, um, I've trained a lot of collaborative writers over the years and and usually they have a background in fiction writing because, you know, novelists, fiction writers are used to embodying different characters. And you really have to be able to look at the world through someone else's eyes. You know, empathy is is a superpower of, of collaborative writers. And I think, you know, that's why I love memoir, um, because you're so close in the consciousness of another person. I don't, can't think of another medium. Mm-hmm where you're actually looking at the world through someone else's eyes, and that creates empathy. Well, see, and that's that's what a, a Stephen Furtick always says, how is this moving through you? In other words, it's it's almost like you have received this, but you know we're, we're going to receive it as well on this side. So, I mean, you, you've got to put yourself in that mental state, meditation, prayer, whatever. I mean, whatever it takes to be able to have that energy move through you. Yeah, I mean, you really have to be open to it mm-hmm. and and... You know, I've had some spooky things happen collaboratively writing. Like I wrote, uh, there's a little piece in the sun to shine that I wrote. And, and, um, when the author read it, he was like, I don't, I don't remember telling you that story. And we we're listening to the recordings, you know, like, you know, not to get woo, but it is really a, a mind meld and a heart meld in a way. Have you picked up any ghosts, any spooks or spirit guides or keepers? Um, I have a few spirit guides lurking around, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I, I love yeah. tapping into their energy. You know, the place that I go into in order to listen to them is, I have a forest here in South Charlotte. It is such a, I, I, it's like I've spent my entire life trying to present this forest to future writers, to future readers and things. Do you have places where you go where you go, you know, this, this might be my right now, but it is for someone in the future? Yeah. I mean, I tend to go, I like to go away when I'm, I'm doing intensive writing. Um, you know, I, Hawaii is my happy place. There's something about the feel of the air there. I go and I get very inspired. And, um, you know, for my own book, I went away for two months, um, across the world. I went to a little Island in off of Thailand called Koh Samui and wrote the first draft of my book there. I had to be on, you know, away from my family away from work and really um because i wasn't going to do the book unless i was going to be really really honest yeah yeah did you find yourself journaling during that because i mean when you disappear like that mentally and physically i mean it's like time goes by but you have no idea what you did but whoa there's words in front of me yeah i mean i had um i remember one day i was like okay i'm gonna work on this chapter i'm gonna finish it and then i can go explore a little bit and I finished the chapter and I looked at the clock and it had been like an hour had passed. And I, you know, I had some crazy things happen, you know, when I was working on the darkest chapter of the book, the darkest time in my life, um, you know, thunder and lightning was hitting this little house I was staying in the top of this mountain and shaking it. And it felt very, you know, omen-like. And then when I was working on the the more happier, inspirational parts, the sun would come out. So. I kind of thought I was controlling the weather. 
Isn't isn't it kind of odd that when you step into those dark areas, though, I, I every each time that I do, I always get this this tingling over me. I always call it earthquaking. But you know that you're headed into an area, and it's like stay true to the path. There's something that's going to be happening here. Just stay true. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know when you're really um, when you're really being honest. Yep. Yep. To yourself first, though. How can you be honest to yeah. anybody else if you can't do it to yourself? Exactly. I love this line, and and I just I just think it is so powerful. Shame is a poison worse than heroin. I, who, my God, what what a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain. You know, shame. We have an intellectual understanding of it, right? Like, yeah, shame. You know that, but. You know, I, I, I did this talk one time and I asked the audience, I said, everyone, you know, close your eyes and think of the worst thing you've ever done. Mm. Just, you know, think of that thing, you know, and it's going to be a spectrum for people. Might be cutting someone off or it might be something, you know, betrayal. Think of the worst thing you're, you're, you've ever done. And then I said, open your eyes. Now turn to the person to the, your right and tell them. Ooh. And everyone in the audience like gasped and like, like <laughs> and I said, that right there, that gasp, that fear, that's what shame feels like like that's shame like that's the visceral feeling of shame now imagine living with that every single day mm. this book is screaming for something on national geographic are you going to work with them or anybody in in bringing what you have learned through your lessons of life and through the words on this page to, to put it in pictorial form well, not National Geographic, but um, it has been optioned to be a TV series nice. um, by by Scott Budnick um, and uh, One Community, and they're uh, a great production company that also combines social impact with the work they do. And they did Just Mercy that movie. Scott's also the producer of the Hangover movie. So, if you combine those two, that's kind of my story. So, uh, it's going to be a dark comedy. TV series. Obviously, everything's on hold now with the strike, but but that will be happening. Is there such a thing as breaking through addiction? Because it, don't you also live in fear at that point in time? Because you know that if you do slip, there's shame waiting for you on the other side of the door. Yeah, I mean, I think addiction is a symptom. I think mm. what I looked for that I thought I got from the pills and later the heroin. I now work really hard to get that in my life naturally. And what I wanted was connection. What I wanted was love. What I wanted was to not feel so alone. And so I think, you know, what I wanted was community, mm -hmm. right? Like community mm -hmm. is what heals shame, right? And so, and, and for me, the one, the one thing I know where I'm on a slippery slope, if I'm pretending anywhere in my life, Yep. that's that's my warning sign so and for me you know things things were bad enough for me there's no part of me that thinks drugs are going to make anything better yeah you know and i and some of us learn things the hard way so i hope people read the book and are like okay i don't need to learn things that way not just read the book they need to study the book they need they need to really go in there with a clean mind going i'm going to walk away from this book a different person mm. thank you I hope so. Please come yeah. back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you. I would love to. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? <laughs> okay.